0: Is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But on the digital Bob phone from New York, he's our guest, wine and food critic, Eric Asimov.
1: The air is getting hotter. There's a rumbling in the skies. I've been wading through the high muddy water with the heat rising in my eyes. Every day your memory grows dimmer. It doesn't haunt me like it did before. I've been walking through the middle of nowhere, trying to get to heaven before they close the door. When I was in Missouri, they would not let me be. I had to leave there in a hurry. I only saw what they let me see. You broke a heart that loved you. Now you can seal up the book, not write anymore. I've been walking that lonesome valley, trying to get to heaven before they close the door.
0: <laughs> I love that. You know, I've never really noticed seal up the book before. That's an interesting turn of phrase. Anyway, Eric, welcome. And why did you choose that?
1: It's really hard to, to pick out a phase of Dylan. You know, I, I'm 64 years old and he's been meaningful to me my whole conscious life, it seems. And, you know, I could have picked out uh, something from my teenage years when, uh, you know, he was piercing the hypocrisy and, you uh, easy to see without looking too far not much is really sacred mm. and you know college years it seemed that every album had something to say about heartbreak and and uh, relationships that weren't going anywhere for me then in my 30s the the religious songs were actually quite meaningful but I thought you know now I what I listen to more than anything are the, the later Dylan albums or at least a few of them. And I decided on this song because I just love the, the kind of melancholy, the, uh, the moodiness of it, uh, the, the world weariness, and also just the way everything is located uh, geographically. It's, it's almost kind of a, travelogue around America and dealing with heartbreak. It's a beautiful song.
2: I noticed um, you broke a heart that loves you for the first time when you, when you said those lyrics, I thought, wow, that's a, that's a really incisive accusatory line, which I I don't think I'd heard before. Yeah. And you know, who
1: broke the heart? Uh, Mm. When did it happen? Mm. We don't know, but it looks like he's just trying to put it behind him and You know, there's there's so much in this song that seems to sort of carry themes through the decades. If you listen to um, if you see her say hello, she thinks that I've forgotten her. Don't tell her it isn't so. Or most of the time, you know, it's oh he's always trying to forget somebody and it's not quite working. Yeah, (laughs) that's a pretty good point. Is "Time Out of Mind" one of your uh, big go-tos in the
0: in the later album uh, series?
1: I think the songs on it, the songs that I like, are great. With all of the albums, there's there are songs that invariably I just have to to skip, and "Time Out of Mind" is one of those albums where my favorite song is from "Telltale Signs," the uh, original version of "Can't Wait." Oh god yeah um, yeah I totally which agree I, which I think is is so brilliant I'm not one of those people that's um you know always castigating Bob on the choices that he made yeah, I, yeah. I don't really feel like I have that he knows his reasons he knows why he's doing things but on that song it's like why didn't you do this <laughs> But you know, it, it's yeah. it's so raw and so um, emotional and so so brilliant before you know so many of the songs get caught up in that morass of, of Daniel Lanois. Hmm. But um, yeah, this album just set everything going again.
2: I love the lyrics in that version of "Can't Wait." The um, I've been drinking forbidden juices. I've been yeah. living on lame excuses. I mean, that's what a loss that was to not I know. I know. It's funny
0: because th- just this morning I was listening to Spotify and I was listening to I was listening to Telltale Signs and I, I found the alternative version number two that's what they call it which is one right. of the ones that they added you know fairly recently that came from the big box set the pink floyd and, and version the, the version of can't wait which is the it's basically organ driven it's kind of it's got there's this organ base and it, it runs seven and a half minutes so it's,
2: it's it sounds like something out of a late 70s pink floyd i think Do
0: you know, you know, the one I mean, Mm. I I just love it. I love it. It it sounds like Daniel Lanois maybe left the room or something, (laughs) you know, they're they're. It's not tight. They're just sort of working out. I like it again, more than the uh, one on the, on the album, the albums, it's really, to be honest, one that's, I kind of grip my teeth through some of the tracks and actually trying to get to heaven. I have to say has never been one of my big faves, but you know, this is why we're talking. I mean, why I, that one I, in particular, Eric? I mean, I'm wondering, you know, is, is it be, lyrically the idea of trying to get to heaven? Is there something about the lyrics or just the feel of it?
1: There's both. One of the things with, um, with Dylan, one of the challenging things for me is divorcing the words from the music. I tried to read this a few times to my wife. And uh, she kept uh, catching me on trying to reproduce the, the singing cadence that Bob was using, which, you know, is just impossible. But it's the mood of it. It's the, the atmosphere. And I'm really drawn to the atmospheres that he creates or, or atmospheric in any thing in film, in literature. And I think this is just one of his most atmospheric songs. I, I'm not that interested in plot as I am in in atmosphere. So, you know, I kind of uh, I I lose the thread with uh, Lily Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts, or yeah, you know, too. those long narrative songs. But this right. I just love.
0: Yeah, that's interesting because I I'm I am quite plot. Driven, I think more, more and more. Not not in Dylan songs. I, I'm absolutely with you as far as atmosphere. But I happened to see. I saw Licorice Pizza the other day. The film, which oh, has got right. like, the best reviews of the year, really and awesome. it's got no plot. And I just couldn't. I enjoyed the first hour, and then I thought, I'm sorry, it's just like. It's a bunch of guest cameos. I know this is not Bob Dylan, obviously, but it, I I thought, what's wrong with you? Why are you so plot? <laughs> you should be more. You, you know, your mind should be more expansive. And it is with Dylan because with Dylan, I I re- genuinely don't care.
1: And you know, with this with this song, you you can feel the the humidity rising, mm. the heat, the fog. It's almost misty. And it's so archaic as well, you know, whether it's uh, riding in a buggy with Miss Mary Jane or or going down to the parlor. And, um, you know, that's something that's just, it seems characteristic of of Dylan. You can't quite place it in time, but because of the language that he
2: uses, it just stretches back into history. How do you, Eric, when that album came out, had you, like many people, not all people, but had you, like many people, slightly given up on him in that it was his first album of new songs in a while it's 25 years ago now but it was there was the dry patch before that album came out
1: yes you know i i sort of had but things kept coming out that kept my interest whether it had been biograph or the the first bootleg Mm. LPs And I, I was a big fan of the uh, two acoustic albums he mm. did. I, I really enjoyed those albums. Um, I loved his guitar playing, which I mm. think people are, are kind of roundly criticized and, and, and often rightly so. But in those albums, it's it's fantastic. And uh, just the revisiting these old folk songs, these old blues, I I thought was terrific. And I guess a lot of people have said that revived him. But I remember uh, a friend of mine got me an early copy of Time Out of Mind on cassette tape before Mm. it had been released. And I was walking around uh, Montreal um, listening it, to, listening to it on my Walkman, yeah. and um, and it just captured me. And it's funny how how certain albums, the the first time you listen to them, they just draw you in, or they just don't move you at all. So, what was the first Dylan album you heard? I have the clearest memory of being eight years old and going to my next door neighbor and best friend Alan's house, and his older brother was playing something I had never heard anything like, it was, I want you. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, just the the repetitive organ and guitar riff, uh, the chorus, it just stuck in my mind. It was like, it just grabbed me. And, you know, who is this guy? At that time, I was buying my first 45s and, mm-hmm. um, first Beatles albums. And, you know, he always kind of, um, stuck in my mind. I didn't actually listen to any Dylan then. And it wasn't until I was in high school, I guess, or junior high that I started exploring the older Dylan by that time, mm-hmm. bringing it all back home and, and highway 61 and, and, uh, and eventually getting to the, um, acoustic stuff. But it was right about that time that I was reading the uh, the Beats and Ken Kesey and Dylan Fit into that, pointing out the hypocrisies of American life. And, you know, even the, the president of the United States must have to stand naked, which in the uh, Watergate era always drew this enormous roar from the crowd when yeah. he did it. And that's you know that's really where it began, and it was just kind of a um, on and off exploration until I was in college and started buying the albums sequentially as they came out.
2: And, and That would have been I guess
1: mid late seventies. That beginning uh, mid seventies, so yeah. beginning with uh, Blood on the Tracks and Desire. Street Legal was never. One of my favorites. The music was hard to listen to, and um, after I got over the the shock of his Christian conversion, I really embraced those albums. And uh, I was kind of, I felt like I was the, uh, you know, the lone voice among my friends for for sticking <laughs> up for them. You know, I didn't really look at it as singing about Christ or the church. It just seemed more about pure love and devotion. And and that spoke to me, and rebirth, I guess, and rebirth, and and some of a lot of those songs were funny also. When mm. you're going to wake up, you know, God don't make promises; He don't keep. I mean, mm. I, that always me. I always cracked up when I heard. it. Sing that and and in fact during the 80s somebody uh, I, I somehow got bootlegs of his recordings at Massey Hall doing those oh, religious yeah. songs yeah and um, those eventually came out just a few years ago as a as a bootleg but they mm. they were magnificent
2: i mean great band great recordings mm. and committed singing it was fantastic yeah that toronto show the one that they released on on that uh box set is is phenomenal. It's it could stand as its own live album very, very easily. Yeah. I
1: mean I i started uh seeing Dylan concerts in the 80s I guess uh early 80s when when he said he was at the bottom of his game and I was still drawn in. Some of them were better than others, but when he was on he was fantastic. There was always something that that I was listening to and, and interested in. And, you know, it just got to the point where I was curious about what he was doing. I was reading all the books, but uh, those mid-80s albums just were, were so disappointing. I never lost the thread, but I stopped automatically the albums. Hmm. But speaking of seeing him uh, live and where you saw him live, um, I mean, yeah. I know
0: you're you're from New York. You're in New York born, yes. born and bred.
1: Uh, Manhattan? Yes. New York? Um, I was born outside of New York in uh, Nassau County, the, the first ring of suburbs, but I've been living in Manhattan for 40 plus years now. So is that where you've seen him uh, most uh, of
0: the time live in, in New York?
1: Yeah, I've seen him pretty much every tour he's Done through New York, and you know there have been assorted trips outside as well. Um, my uh, in-laws live in D.C., so I've gone down there to see shows with them. And my wife and I, my wife to be and I, in two thousand and one, were were leaving town to get married. Right about the time he was coming to Manhattan, so we drove up to Syracuse to to see him and um i also in the the 90s uh i became friendly with tony garnier who was working with bob mm. <laughs> uh, you know had been playing bass for him forever so that was an added draw to see the band he's Did now you- played more shows with bob Dylan yeah. than any any musician yes ever yes I think, by quite a long way i think so by yeah. far yeah yeah, he's, and he's,
0: he's pretty cool. I mean, I just love watching him when I get a chance, you know, live or on, on um, you know, whatever, Mastin Anonymous, whenever he
1: appears on camera because he's so – is he as cool as that in real life? Absolutely. I met him back in the uh, 90s. I was, uh, I was a restaurant critic at the Times, mm-hmm. and I was occasionally moonlighting and doing like a, a profile of a musician who I was curious about. And I was writing about kind of an alt-country guy, Junior Brown,
2: mm-hmm. who oh, yeah. was
1: a, a virtuoso of this instrument he had invented. The, he called it the git steel. That was a, a combination of guitar and pedal steel. And I was on his tour bus talking to him. And then the bus was parked outside of whatever the, the concert venue was. And Tony Garnier came on and we were introduced and he knew me through my restaurant writing because he's a re- he's really into food and he's a great cook i eventually wrote a story about him for the times because every year he used to to cook a gumbo on on christmas and he would invite a, a bunch of people over or anybody was passing through who he knew and this was an, an amazing gumbo and and so i got him to give me the recipe and wrote a story about him oh that's
2: fantastic i just feel a little bit it, close to him he's <laughs> such a great musician he can't have known back then that he was going to be playing with dylan for now 30 years that it would be the rest of his you know his life really for for so many many years i mean
1: how could you know how could you predict what bob will do in which direction he'll go in but you know he's very careful he and i Never spoken about Bob, uh, except in the most general sorts of way, because uh, yeah. that's not that's not what he does. You know, I, I don't know if people have to sign NDAs or whatever.
2: I'm sure they do, but uh, I'm sure there's something to do with anybody who plays with him for longer than a few days knows full well that the minute they start blabbing about him to other people, <laughs> their days are presumably numbered. Right? I don't think it's right. in anyone's interest, right. is it? For well,
0: c- certainly in the last say 30 years but of course we had rob stoner on the podcast and that was
1: way before NDAs. yeah so <laughs> that's true <he> mine <laughs> well he also knows he's never playing with bob again well exactly <laughs> if you haven't had the
0: call for you know the last 50 years then right. probably it's that phone is not going to ring
1: yeah coincidentally the night my story about tony and his gumbo was published in the times they were playing in new york And I went to to see the concert. And Bob, back then, was in the phase. He would make a few jokes about each of the band members as he introduced them. And he he introduced uh, Tony, who he said really cooks on bass. So (laughs) I I felt that actually seen by Bob Dylan that night.
0: Yeah. Actually, I went through. I'm just going to get this over with. Because you were a food critic and you're currently New York Times wine critic. I just started going through the repertoire and looking for food references. And right. uh, they're everywhere. Don't know if you've ever done that, but from, you know, just country pie, uh, yeah, you have a bottle of bread, Highland with the hard boiled eggs, and, then, and Tweedledee and Tweedledum with the brains in the Rain's pot. Brains in the pot. Yeah, <laughs> dripping with garlic and olive oil. But I right. mean, it just goes on and on. And then I was listening uh, again to... I I guess I was listening to you. That's right, Modern Times, because... I've always found "ain't talking" uh, just—I've always liked it, but it's—it's it's hard to concentrate, you know, on the long songs. So I was sitting there in my uh, kitchen, actually, I was doing some cooking, and uh, the line came up, "Ain't talking, just walking, eating hog-eyed grease in a hog-eyed town."
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, what wow. does that even mean? <laughs> <laughs> wow, yeah, what does that mean? exactly?
0: What does that even mean? It does sounds disgusting, doesn't it? I mean, complete hog-eyed grease. <laughs> Not just grease. You're not just eating hog-eyed grease. grease. Hog-eyed grease. <laughs> hog-eyed grease. But, you know, it's fine because it's a hog-eyed town, so it's got to be fresh, right?
1: Can you imagine playing in the band and hearing that lyric for the first time? I mean, you must crack up. <laughs> well, it is. It's very f- – in fact, yeah.
0: <laughs> I cracked up. You know, you think Bob Dylan is not going to make you laugh and not an old song that you've heard a 100 times. But I actually cracked up. I thought, that's hilarious. That's a, it's so Bob. You don't know why it's funny.
1: Yeah, and, and you know, Bob actually uh, was involved in a wine venture. I, I guess in the mid 2000s, he had signed on with a really good winemaker in the uh, Marche region of Italy, and they were issuing signed bottles with names like Planet Waves. Mm. And uh, it it was actually really good wine. Was it? So I had encountered his manager, Jeff Rosen, a few times back Mm -hmm. then and, and had gotten his contact info. And so I used to call Jeff about once a year, trying to uh, to see if Bob was interested in talking about wine. And basically, I, I got some form of "not a chance" yeah. back from <laughs> Jeff. But it seemed a good opportunity for me to try to get Bob. If only you'd ask about
2: bourbon instead, you know, maybe he would.
1: Have... Uh, yeah, but I, you know, I know the routine now. He's he's <laughs> never going to talk about it but but, no,
0: the, but to talk about no. something else would be good because i i've i know that if i ever meet him which i never will i'll bring up boxing because i know a yes. amount about boxing and right. i know that he does too you know and i would never talk to him about anything remotely close so i would have thought that wine um speaking of which i did just my bit of research on that too of course there's tons of wine references i mean not clearly businessmen they drink my wine
2: and they Right. Real world men just drink at your blood, like wine. which but, isn't his line. I have to say that's from the Harry Smith anthology of. America. Oh, really? Okay, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. he stole it. That's good. Old, yeah. you know, that's good. Yeah. For or I started out on burgundy,
0: yes. I mean, it, yeah. it just goes on. I get that poison. What happened to that poison wine? You know, mm-hmm. I gave it right. to me, drank it. <laughs> and even if the wine don't come to the top of your cup from uh the Woody Guthrie um poem. Right. But I mean, there's just tons and tons and tons. He does seem to be really into wine and drink. It's, it's not uh, wine and food, rather. It's not just, you know, a little coincidence. Uh, there was one point where I started researching this, and every second song, it's something about wine and, or food. It's, uh, I guess he likes well, his I, wine and food.
1: You know, even in Chronicles, there are, are references to wine and food throughout in his uh, early songs, all the photos of him always at a uh, at a bar or a coffee shop, bottle of red wine, cup of coffee. <laughs> yeah. There, I mean, it's, it's hard um, to imagine him drinking white wine. Somehow, somehow, he, he seems like a
0: red wine guy
1: to me. That's true, and uh, he'll need to be enlightened on that. And, <laughs> and really, you know, right now it's hard to imagine him <laughs> drinking wine at all. You know, the the videos because he's also very uh, sales minded now always show him drinking whiskey <laughs> heaven's
2: door of course Eric, I mean, very personal question but are, are you religious at all because we've skirted around religion that you you know that you you said you found the religious albums very interesting once you got past that yes. development then we had trying to get to heaven and i was thinking about the wine thing and of course there's biblical wine is, is that an area of, of no i i'm thought?
1: i'm an atheist and i come from a, a family of uh atheists and, and communists and red labor lawyer so yeah right. not at all <laughs> i mean i'm a, i'm culturally a jew yeah and proud of that but i'm uh not religious in the
2: slightest no i didn't think so just it interested me with the, the trying to get the heaven thing and then what you said but, about but i'm
1: not bothered by it either yeah and um i find there's so much uh i mean you could devote hours to, to studying the bible and dylan songs yeah. or you know even even today the the christian imagery in them you know, I decided it doesn't bother me whatever his religious predilections are, and, and clearly he is religious in, in some form or another. I'm not offended. You know, it's it's like, would you be? Are you offended by all the religion in Beethoven or great classical music? Or you
2: know? no, and I and I think it's really interesting because, of course, there is that very acutely religious period, but like you say, he didn't come out and say that's all done now. No, he sort of never. gently incorporates into his shows. There are some of those songs that he still did. He still does Got to Serve Somebody. But I remember in an interview right. a few years ago, someone asked him, are there any songs of yours that you think haven't had the right amount of attention that could be focused on a little bit more, more deserved attention? And he said, In the Garden. Which I've always thought was a great song. Yeah. and I, um, I, That's fascinating to me that he thinks that about In the Garden. He did that
1: song for a long time, although he, not for the last 10 or 15 years or so. Um, Speaking of doing songs, yeah. you're the only one. uh We haven't talked to
0: anyone who's seen him live in uh, the post-COVID times, but you saw him at the Beacon. So we don't usually yes. ask too much about live stuff, but I'd like to ask this
1: time. I mean, what did you take away from that? He was great. It was a wonderful concert, and uh it, it was... I love Rough and Rowdy Ways. I mean, it's the first of his recent albums, more recent albums <laughs> since Love and Theft, that I, I found myself being drawn to again and again, and developing a really emotional tie to. Mm-hmm. And um, he just he did those songs so beautifully. I mean, I have to say, uh, his concerts have gotten better and better over the last. Twenty-five years. There was a time in the uh, beginning of the century when he was playing, you know, real, really loud rock and roll style, which was fun. But in the last ten years, he's really quieted the band down and created this sort of moody lounge stage set, and and it's all become much more intimate and. I don't know if it was off, being off the road for a year or what, but his voice sounds better
2: now than it's sounded in years. I agree. And I think that lounge style would probably fit certain venues better than others. I mean, I've never been to the Beacon, but I've I've seen yeah. the Scorsese Rolling Stones film, which I think is at the Beacon, isn't it? Shine a light. Yes. And I'm yes. just imagining how perfect a venue that is for Dylan now. Whereas Hyde Park, for example, which is, I think, the last time he played in this country, right. and yeah. not so much. But the Beacon, I'm sure, is perfect for it. It's perfect for him now. I mean,
1: one of the greatest Dylan concerts I, I saw was in at Madison Square Garden in 2002, which is a big mm. arena. Mm. I mean, he had a great band then with, with Charlie Sexton and Larry Campbell, and they could really carry it off. And that was his period of doing cover versions of people yeah. like Warren Zevon and the Rolling yeah. Stones and... And those were great fun. And that night he did, because they were in London, I guess they were doing the tribute to George Harrison and he couldn't be there.
2: That's right.
1: So he did something that night, which was just wow. tremendous. But yeah, the, the concert was, not only was it great and not only was he enunciating every word, but I think for the for the first time, I had that kind of a revelatory feeling During the concert, his song from Rough and Rowdy Ways, uh, I decided to devote myself to you. Give no, give myself. Mm. Yeah. Which, you know, you listen to it on the album, and it's, I thought at first, it's a pleasant song. But in concert, he gets up from behind the piano with his microphone and he sings it to the audience. And wow. it just took on a, an entirely different meaning as oh. if, you know, it was this <laughs> this act of generosity that, you know, <laughs> he was going to spend his life singing his songs, not for his own benefit, but for the benefit of the audience. Isn't
2: that beautiful? Because yeah. I've, I've heard some people say, I've made up my mind to give myself to you is, is to God, but actually... To his audience is a rather lovely sentiment, isn't it? After all this time, I've made up my mind. I'm I'm going to do this for you, actually, audience. Yeah, it was so interesting because he's
1: considered uninterested in the audience, and you know he doesn't. People complain that he doesn't talk. I don't care about that. Mm. Uh, they complain he changes the songs. I think that's great. But, um, you know, the common perception of him is somebody sort of odd and, and misanthropic and, right. and, and simply uninterested in entertainment and, and uncaring about how he's received. And I, I just, I, I feel underneath, it's not at all true. It's just that his devotion to his art Takes precedence over his devotion to entertainment, and in some way they can be combined if you're open to receiving it that way.
2: He was quite jocular towards the crowd at one of those Beacon shows. I'm not sure which one you went to. The, not the not the
1: one I was at. In fact, um, you know, he made a, a, a geographical remark as he had been doing, locating himself, <laughs> right. uh, you know, talking about the various landmarks. But then he forgot to introduce the band. What do you mean completely? Like he never introduced. He just forgot completely, which was disappointing (laughs) to me because he did it at every other show. I, I remember there was a time when he used to introduce the band members each with like his own dad joke. (laughs) <laughs> um, and they were the lamest one-liners, and, you know. <laughs> and and somebody uh, made a collection of those. You can find a
2: link on uh, on expecting rain, and they're uh, they're yeah. just so funny. <laughs> well, the first time I saw him with Tony Garnier, I think was in 1993, and he completely—I mean, he made a huge joke and talked to the audience and totally exposed Tony Garnier with with a bass solo that he wasn't ready for. Um, <laughs> And then just watched it fall apart in front of his eyes and then just mumbled, uh, maybe I'll get rid of him. This was (laughs) was 1993. He's played a few gigs with him since then, but he took real joy in doing that.
1: That's funny. And unfortunately, that was a one-off. I'd love to hear Tony play a bass solo.
2: Oh, I've got a bootleg. I'll send it to you. It's very, very funny. Right. (laughs) But it is... uh,
0: some things happened. Uh, it seems to me during the lockdown period, where he he came back and and he had his voice back in a lot of ways. And uh, but more importantly, this um this communication with the audience, this this stepping out front and, and singing to the audience. I mean, it's well, I guess it's what it's,
1: he used. Well, you, know, he you know, he was doing to, that you know, the through the, set, the yeah. um, Sinatra concerts.
0: Yeah, but you know what? We we went to one of those Sinatra concerts, yes, and and where he would he would you know he'd go to the mic. But I always got the feeling he was like beating us over the head with it. I mean, I just got the feeling that he was challenging us, that he, I didn't get the feeling he was giving himself to us. I got the feeling he was forcing himself down our throats. That's, that's the feeling I got.
1: (laughs) Well, I, you know, I enjoyed that concert and I, I didn't have the feeling of that he was giving either, but he was doing that lounge singer kind of thing where he would just step out with the microphone. You could imagine him doing that in the shower, like Bill Murray. Yeah. But,
2: uh, <laughs> but again, I think that's you the know, It you was know. it
1: was meaningful in in this recent concert because you know there were times when he didn't look steady on his feet. Yeah. You know, he's he's eighty years old. You're at the point where, like, every step you're you're just hoping that he's not going to fall. No, like, no, I,
0: there's a thing yeah. online where you somebody's. I think somebody's whooping or heckling or something and uh this was uh before covid uh it's it's easily found i can't remember what the song was but he he remonstrates with the person he says you know cut it out or something and he steps ah. back and he trips over a cable right and he almost falls over he he does he takes about 4 or 5 steps back almost yeah. He, he looks like he's going to you know, have a really terrible accident and manages to steady himself. And that was, I guess, about four or five years ago. So yeah, ever since I saw that, I thought, boy, you guys have got to get those cables laid down properly.
1: You don't want to. It's that boxing training. It's good for footwork. It is. <laughs> yes. I must say he,
0: he, <laughs> he covered, he, he did cover very well. It is, it is that boxing training that probably, probably saved him. I mean presumably the atmosphere was just crazy at uh, at the beacon.
1: Well, you know, I it was a younger crowd than than I'm used to at Bob's shows. Mm. You know, usually it's a it's it's a bunch of people with prostate problems. <laughs> um and this you know, this show had all of had a younger crowd. It also had the um you know, various uh well-known Dylan fans there. It was just really cool. It was relief as well. You know, just that was that very slim interval when I saw him between Delta and Omicron. <laughs> and, you know, you just felt like maybe we're, we're out of it now. It, it was just great. And it, it must sounds have been like a Delta 60- lyric. Sorry,
2: between it, Delta and Omicron, or it sounds like uh, yes, right. You know, right. Was,
0: you know between Delta and Ukraine. <laughs>
2: anyway, sorry, right. I was just going to note that, it, that when you saw him in New York, it was within the week of being sixty years to the day that he started recording his first album in, in New York as well, and I'm sure that went completely unremarked upon. Yes, totally. And,
1: you know, it's amazing when you start measuring time, like I was just thinking about time out of mind, which I, you know, so I want to take something from his later stuff, but that's 25 years old now. (laughs) It's like the time between his first album and, uh, you know, almost
2: No Mercy. Yeah, I mean, if that's 60 years ago, you know, 60 years before that was the Burr War, you know, it's ridiculous how long. When you think the Beatles had
1: seven years, he had 60. Yeah, and, you know, when you go see a concert like that, I'm also always struck by how I can't think of any other artist, uh, certainly in in pop music, but uh, really in any field who's had that span of creativity you know, you go see an eighty-year-old guy doing his new songs. Mm. And I mean, it's un, it's unheard of. The The Stones are playing their fifty-year-old songs, and that's mm. what people want to hear.
2: Yeah, there is no real comparison, I and mean, even Leonard Cohen has been gone now for over five years, and he started a good yeah. five years after Dylan. You know, there aren't many comparisons who have had that kind of staying power.
1: Yeah, Spe- Neil Spe- young,
2: young.
0: Maybe I, Neil, I don't know. Maybe Neil Young. Yeah, but has Neil Young done his best album? When he was yeah. seventy nine. Well, I don't had, know. 70, I hear Bone is good. Yet, I don't know. I haven't heard Bone. What about um, speaking of times? We, we exchanged uh, an email before, um, a few weeks ago, Eric, and you talked about you you like love and th- you prefer Love and Theft to say Modern Times. And I'm just trying to stir it yeah. up here because I know Modern Times is one of Luke's uh, favorite later albums. I tend to agree with you, but yeah, do you want to speak to that?
1: I said before there are always songs that you want to skip. And there are just more of them on Modern Times for me. Mm. There's a, a few great songs on that album, uh, Working Man Blues and Nettie Moore and uh, Ain't Talking. But, they're, you know, I, I think Dylan got into a rut somewhere where he started doing bar band blues musical tracks that just go on mm. forever. Mm. And they're repetitive, and I find them uninteresting. That was true on Love and Theft as well with um, Honest With Me and Lonesome Day Blues. That I, mm. <laughs> Those are the songs I skip on that album, right. although they had a, a revival in concert. But the atmospherics of that album, the musicianship, you know, I think they, they really capture the, the Larry Campbell, Charlie Sexton band at its, at its peak,
2: Love okay. and Theft humor on that album. Love and Theft, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, Love and Theft kind of sets a template, doesn't it, for for at least twenty years. Whereas Time Out of Mind is not like that. And I think the the template right. that's set by Love and Theft is is very much continued through modern times, and then together through life. That, that's true. He started depends. producing himself and, yeah. and using his road band. And I think it depends on your tolerance for kind of Muddy Waters-esque riffs and things like that before right. you, you do go, okay.
0: <laughs> I think I think on Modern Times yes. he does overdo the – it's nothing but sort of – the blues is kind of sludgy. I don't know how to put it. But for some reason, Modern Times doesn't interest me that much musically anyway because Love and Theft right. does. Love and Theft perks me up every time I put and, it on. And
1: even if some of those – songs are derivative. Mm. You know, I, I guess he took Tweedledee from, from some fifties song or, or even older. Uncle and, John's uh, bongos. Yeah, yeah. It's a complete, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <took> it completely. <laughs> but it's exciting. And, and sugar baby as well. Yes. It's, it, it's exciting. And, and the musicianship is great. Uh, the words are funny and, you know, there's such a different feel to that album because he's going back to kind of old 30s parlor music, I guess, with uh, mm. Floater, By and By, Mo- uh, Moonlight, and, and even the, uh, the blues-esque, uh, Cry For Me. <laughs> I mean, that's a funny song with tempo mm. changes. That's mm. just, it's not as musically uh, repetitive as some of the other Muddy Waters-esque songs.
2: I think it was the, was a Grammy performance of Cry a While he did. I guess the year after that. I think Bonnie Raitt said is the funkiest performance by a white man that's ever been given. Or <laughs> something. Sort of it's really good. It's really really good.
0: What was the song he was doing? Uh, was it at the Grammys where the guy, where the Soy Bomb guy came? That came was Love
2: Sick. Yeah, that was Love Sick.
0: That was pretty much yeah. uh,
2: agreed that, that that was a setup, right? That oh, he was a eat. performance artist. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, as, and that, as that much you knew a joke he was going to come uh, on, Rolling Thunder Review is, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: You know, the, the other thing that, that we haven't talked about that goes along with this later period is both Chronicles and his radio show. And there have also been other uh, speeches that he's given. There was a time in the 80s or 90s when if you saw Bob talk, it, it tended to be incoherent, guarded, weird. <laughs> you know, it's just mm. like, what, Drunken what the, often, the yeah. fuck is he talking about? Yeah. And then, you know, he started becoming relatable in a way, especially on the radio show. And I loved his radio shows. Me too. Um, I thought they they just uh, showed great musical taste, Um, were were fun to listen to, informational, informal, kind in a way. Yeah. Change things for me i think a lot of perceptions are are stuck in the in those in the 80s 90s i hope we have
2: some more i'm not sure i'm sure he doesn't plan these things but we had a hundred and then a couple surfaced and then there was a special one you know a year ago or so i'd be really happy to have some more theme time radio hour i really would
1: there are a couple of bootleg theme timers that i haven't been able to track down i have to recall what the subjects were out there somewhere
2: which is one i've got them all somewhere And there's the whiskey one. The the
1: whiskey one, right. That was very promotional, which I I get. Um, But he
2: did
0: sound like, I mean, it was very clearly, um, blatantly flogging the old uh, Bob Dylan whiskey. But uh, it was one of the most fun ones because he sounded like (laughs) 10 years younger
2: then, yeah. you know is the end he, when he, he said was a bit uh, tired. it wasn't that the one where he said because in, in the early shows he was talking about listening on your record player or your CD player and he said nowadays you might even be listening on your smart toaster
0: that's right <laughs> right right <laughs> I mean, he was he was just loving the he used to sort of sneak those dad jokes underneath <laughs> and then right. this, he was like a stand-up in the last one like oh, mm. yeah I'm sure we all if we we had some uh request for Bob it would be bring back theme time radio
2: sometimes We'd I'm listening to Bob. music in my car and I, and I hear Hear a song and I think, oh, that song's about a fairground. I could think about five songs about fairgrounds. And I think, why doesn't Bob Dylan do a song, a theme time radio hour about fairgrounds or something like that? There's, there's so too, many things he could do.
0: He's too busy. I mean, we haven't, uh, we've discussed Shadow Kingdom uh, quite a lot on this, but I, I think yeah. that that's, it's so great the way he, rein, that's typical of his sort of reinvention of songs. And I, I was reading an article actually about it the other day, and I noticed that, I mean, it was quite clear that he, he changed the names of songs where, so it's all over now, baby blue, which would easily have fit on screen. He just called baby blue. So not only did he change lots of the lyrics, but he just decided to change the titles as well. And that's the sort of thing
1: we, I'm sure we all love about, about about moving forward. I love the moving forward. Although sometimes I, I find it alarming. I was looking through the lyrics book, looking for, for inspiration And I turned to blood on the tracks. I saw it tangled up in blue. And those are the original lyrics, even though he's changed them in concert many times. Then I looked at the lyrics of if you see her say hello, and they're completely butchered. And You know, he's cut out verses and changed rhymes. And I mean, I, it's not for me to say what he can do with his songs. And as I said, I'm very hesitant to to advise him or, you know, <laughs> be like uh, Clinton Halen and tell him he's doing it all wrong. Um, but I, I just was appalled by uh, what he did. And if you look at the lyrics in his book they're you know, it's, it's bizarre. It's not an improvement. I had to go back to the song to, to really feel better about it. Yeah, it is, um, his
0: reasoning is, uh, often uh, escapes us mortals. I was listening to the Shadow Kingdom bootleg of the, of the music the other day, and I was listening to uh, Paint My Masterpiece. And uh, again, he, he said, uh, i going to wash my clothes, scrape off all of the grease. I'll stay right there until I paint my masterpiece. Hug-eyed Greece, <laughs> and it's more. It was more Greece again. I thought, yeah. is, there, is there's a theme merging here? But what is the? But of course, there was the pretty little girl from Greece in the. I guess it was the original one that was released.
2: Two different kinds of Greece. So he's, though, yeah. Exactly, he's changed
0: right. Greece to yeah. <laughs> Greece. Do you think he's is an homage to uh, the the musical Greece? I mean, who knows what the hell's going I, on?
1: I doubt that. I mean, even in trying to get to heaven, he he shifted a line in the written lyrics. When you think that you've lost everything, you find out you can always lose a little more. He put it in a different place in the, the written lyrics. And, you know, I've listened to some recordings since then. And he thinks that the the way it was originally recorded. So I am just not sure what the yeah. what the reasoning there was, or is it you know is the are these
2: transcription
1: errors or
2: what? That's a fascinating line too, because that's a riff on when you ain't got nothing, you got nothing to lose, isn't it?
0: Right, sure. right. Is there a, a song of Dylan's that continues to mystify you, or that you think is you know impenetrable?
1: Well, I, I mean, so many of them seem impenetrable. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <to> me. <laughs> well, a particular, like, for instance,
0: for instance, uh, you were talking about "Working Man's Blues" being one of your the, the songs that you think uh, you you like on multiple um, yes. times. Whereas I've actually, it's not that I think it's mysterious because I think it's a bit on the nose. But for me, let's say I'll rephrase my question. I would say I think that's a one of his. I think it's one of his more musically dull songs. To me, I, I don't like Wicked Man's movies. that. That's one of the ones I, that I just you know. Out. I think
1: I I have seen him do that in concert quite a few times, and mm. I just I it's it's heightened my affection. I don't actually mm. I I almost never listen to that album Modern Times. Mm-hmm. You know, if I missed myst- okay, there are songs that that do mystify me, and you know, I love the song Joker Man, for example. Mm but uh, I have no idea what it's talking about.
0: It's about Greece, Uh, obviously, I
1: think. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And, you know, a lot of his 80s material that people try to find, you know, some redeeming benefit in, whether it's, um, you know, new Danville girl or Mm -hmm. uh, when the night comes falling from the sky, I just, you know, I listened to them once just to refresh my memory, and it reminds me why I, I don't really listen to, to Dylan from that period. Yeah, I'm, I'm a bit like that with most of Street Legal,
0: in that I think some some lines jump out and are absolutely brilliant, but the actual songs, most yeah. of them are so mystifying.
1: I, uh, I, I would also say No Mercy, which is an album yeah. that I recognize its meaning, but I don't like it musically, it's just too stop and start in a, in a song like "Man in the Long Black Coat." I just don't get it.
2: You know, oh, that's it doesn't
1: because that, that to me that's a story song. It's not it's not a strong story,
0: but it's I can kind of picture it. It's very visual to me. Yeah, yeah. Me too, I too.
1: you know it seems I I kind of think that Dylan's best work from the late eighties was for the Wilburys. <laughs> uh, they, yeah, no, I'm with you. I, I love. The I world. mean, there he just seemed liberated. and he didn't have to be uh, heavy. He could just be funny and, and open. And you see, he's, he still had his his sense of humor and a sense of observation.
2: There, um, there is a theory. Yeah. And um, Stephen Cockroft, who does the Nothing Is Real podcast, yes. they did they did an episode on the Wilburys. And he and I have known each other for a while. And he was saying to me, he was saying the more he researched that period, he started to think that the whole point of the Travelling Wilburys was George Harrison trying to help Bob Dylan get out of his rut. And if you look at it, it worked. Because after that, yes. you know, he was he had a greater sense of freedom. He felt more confident about what he was doing. And it, now it looks more and more like just a, a really lovely gesture from a friend to say, come on, let's go play with some friends in the garage and you can rediscover what you like about playing music. And I think maybe maybe he's got a point. I think there's a lot to it. And it's somehow, it's not as if
1: the music Bob started recording on his own then had that sense of lightness and freedom. I mean, No Mercy is, is a dark album.
2: "Oh, oh Mercy is my but, uh, I've said before, but it's one of my absolute favorites. I adore it.
1: Yes, I, I know you've said that, and, and I've gone back to it exactly for that reason, because if Luke loved it, <laughs> oh, or something to it, and I'm just missing. But, <laughs> but
0: it's funny, isn't it? I think there's something about one's individual personality that is, is manifested in one's favourite Bob Dylan album. You know, there's something about Luke that is very Oh Mercy. <laughs> yeah. Gr- Grumpy I man in his
2: late 40s, yeah, no, I, I hear <laughs>
0: Yeah, you know, and uh, and I like love and theft probably because of the humor. Uh, I'm I'm sort of drawn to that. It speaks to me. And not that I don't uh, like Oh Mercy because I I do. But it's the reason I don't like Modern Times so much because it doesn't it doesn't have uh, the no humor jokes. of love,
1: love and theft. Right. And Love and Theft is just full of jokes.
2: I'm mm. clearly the problem here because I love modern times and I love Oh Mercy. And maybe I just turn my back <laughs> on the joy. That's what it is.
0: No, but it's, you know, it is, it, it does speak to our own personalities. And there's nothing uh,
1: wrong with our
2: yeah, no, know, you're right. personalities. You're
1: right. yeah. I, I also feel Oh Mercy is just, it's, it's trapped in that uh, Daniel Lanois morass again. You know, it's everything is like thick and oozy and, and stop and start and, you know, swampy, I guess, is the word that's often used to describe his layering production yeah. techniques. But it just is so... It's almost um, claustrophobic for me, and not in a good way. Yeah, I think that's what Bob kind of felt, too. I mean, he certainly
0: wrote about that in uh, in Chronicles. I think he felt sort of bogged down. But he, But on the other hand, he also felt, I think, weirdly stimulated because although he's dispensed with producers he did seem to he did
1: call Lenoir again
0: yeah you know so <laughs> i mean who knows what goes on in that in that wonderful head of his is is there any uh, is there any other song or album from the Mike, what is that sound
1: does it doesn't new york city sound you, you oh, hear it. new york <laughs> that's right out Whistling. on the avenue <laughs> right
0: <laughs> It sounds like a bunch of wolves howling to to me through the <laughs> right. through my mic.
1: Yeah, I you know I live not too far from a hospital, and you know that was the sound of the early pandemic wow. sirens going by. God, the wind began to howl. Yeah, <laughs> I was gonna,
0: uh, I was just gonna ask because we haven't. Uh, this is very unusual uh, for us because we've concentrated mostly on the uh, later albums. But are there any other uh, fave early ones?
1: Yeah, I mean, I just love bringing it all back home. That's uh, strangely my favorite of that trio of mm. albums. And of course, Freewheeling is wonderful. John Wesley Harding, I love. You know, of course, I, I understand. I mean, I love Blonde on Blonde. The music sometimes, is, as with John Wesley Harding, seems a little screechy to me. That wild mercury sound. Mm. Uh, mm but the songs always are, are are giving you something new every time you go back to them. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think, you know, my all-time favorite song is, is It's All Right, Ma. Uh, I just think there there's so much in, in that song and there, there's so much there that, and I keep going back to it through the ages. When I tried to get my, my kids, uh, when they were teenagers, into Bob, that's what I played. You know, and uh, I'm not sure it took, but... <laughs> You know, Bob is Bob is is somebody they uh laugh about as uh dad's music.
2: Isn't there a scene in either the last or the penultimate episode of The Sopranos where AJ's listening to It's Alright Ma? Y- yeah. It's
0: uh yeah, it's towards the end and uh, he's uh, he's necking with his girlfriend yeah. in the
2: SUV and then the <laughs> SUV <laughs> blows up basically. And doesn't he say something like, well, um, this guy's writing like it could be like now or, yeah. or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> doesn't he? yeah. And then it, and
0: then well, the well, car then the uh, C D melts, you remember because he sort of goes, It's all right, right, right. Ma. Uh, oh woo, yes. Woo,
2: woo, woo, woo.
0: I have no idea what that was, but, you know, there was a reason that they were listening to Bob Dillett, but I don't quite get it. But it was lovely to see the, you know, the cultural icon that was AJ. Listening to BD.
2: Well, I'm re The Sopranos with my son, which is taking years because he doesn't even live here anymore. But um, when we get to that episode, I'm hoping he'll hear that song and, and the clouds will part and he'll go, Yes, I see. I see. Dad. The Sopranos
1: is fun just for the, the musical choices there.
0: Yeah. David what about Bob's, Bob's contribution, um, the old uh, Dean Martin song? Uh, what, what was it? Return to me. Return to me. Yeah. Return to me. You know, he he oh, does a lovely. I don't even remember that. Yeah, no, it was on the <laughs> it's on the soundtrack of the uh, the the first Sopranos soundtrack you know,
1: CD. My my thought when his Sinatra album came out was that I wish he'd done Dean Martin <laughs> rather than Frank Sinatra. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, yeah. I always I love Frank, but I always thought Dean was more loose and and sort of the salute and, and, uh, the real, uh, guy who
2: wouldn't knuckle under. He says in the, f- I think it's the first thing time, radio hour. He, I think he plays Dean Martin's version of, I don't care if the sun don't shine, which of course Elvis Presley made very famous. And he said, let's us not forget Elvis wanted to be Dean Martin. That right. <laughs> was
0: great. Oh, that's interesting. No, I didn't know that. But of course, um, yeah, that brings us back to the wine
1: in a way, you know, cause Dean was yeah. pretended to be drunk. I think he was drinking vodka or scotch or whatever, <laughs> whatever they would give him. You know, I have one bottle left of Planet Waves Bob's <laughs> Wine from from 2005 or whenever. If you ever make it to New York, let me
2: know. Hey, hey listen, I, I, I would love that, and I don't even drink. Um- <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's a date. <laughs>
2: Which is better, the album or the wine?
1: Um, I think the wine aged better than the album.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Is It Rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan is recorded on Zencaster. Engineered by Mark Langley-Smith and produced by Robin Guise. Digital imaging by Finn Guise. Music is by Sam Hare. We're part of Pantheon Podcasts, the music podcast network. Find us on Twitter at
0: Pod. Wintertime in New Yorktown The wind blowing the snow around Walk around with nowhere to go Somebody could freeze right to the bone I froze right to the bone New York Times said it was the coldest winter in 17 years but I didn't feel so cold then